Insiders, and a very pleasant good afternoon to you wherever you may be. This is your host, Bruce Ash, coming to you from Coronado, California, where the women are strong, the men are good looking, and the kids' parents believe their kids are way above average. Just ask them and they will be sure to tell you. Hey, Eb is still on assignment today. We hope he gets back with us again real soon. Uh, Eb, if you're out there listening, uh, greetings uh, from Bruce and Tom and everybody uh, who listens to Inside Track. Thanks for tuning in to a special Facing Reality edition of Inside Track. We have another great show for you today. In just a few moments, we'll be talking to friend of the show, and I really mean this, an angel in our community, someone we all respect and support, Jean Fedigan from Sister Jose's Women's Center here in Tucson, Arizona. In the second half of the show, a man we've been working on joining us for some time, author, thinker, social commentator, Charles Murray will join us to discuss his very controversial newest book called Facing Reality, The Two Truths About Race in America. This is an important book for the times we are living in right now. I guess the big news in southern Arizona today is the weather. Wow, what a week. Rain and rain and more blessed rain. Uh, so far between one and two inches of rain today. Um, I think it's mostly sunny in town right now, but there may be some places where it's still overcast or, or uh, raining. Rain is expected to continue later today and Tuesday plus Wednesday. Uh, hey, be careful when driving. Don't drive like a dope. The life you save may be your own. And uh, you know, we just heard on the CBS Top of the Hour News, um, Haiti, uh, as I said, just can't seem to ever catch a break. Um they had an earthquake there, a seven-plus earthquake in southern parts of that island country, and now a, um, a large storm, whether it's a hurricane or a tropical storm, nobody knows right now. Uh, but Fred is bearing down on them, and uh, our, our hearts go out to all of the Haitians, uh, those living in that country. Big news in Arizona is about the U of A and ASU, plus various school districts and municipalities defying an executive order by the governor, creating various mandates and restrictions in towns and school districts. That same sort of breakdown occurring on a federal level also, where our vindictive federal government has offered to fund Florida school districts, school boards, officials who defy state restrictions on mask mandates. In fact, the U.S. Secretary of Education, Michael Cardona, and he's a real lefty, he declared the following, quote, the department stands with these dedicated educators who are working to safely reopen schools and maintain safe in-person instruction, Cardona wrote. Local school leaders should be able to determine their own rules based upon their assessments. He goes on to say, we are eager with the Florida Department of Education on any efforts to further our shared goals of protecting the health and safety of students and educators, Cardona added, warning that his agencies will work directly with school districts, if need be, for funding. Now, Governor DeSantis maintains it should be up to parents to decide whether their children wears a mask. On Friday, the governor's spokeswoman 
criticized the White House for choosing to spend funds on salaries of superintendents and elected politicians who don't believe their parents have a right, or I guess uh, they don't think they know what's best or have the intelligence uh, to wish the best for their uh, children, other than uh, on, excuse me, than on Florida students, which is what these funds should be used for. Obviously, uh, Governor DeSantis is strongly opposed uh, to the uh, administration's attitude here. The Biden administration continues to fumble and bumble its way through the China virus, which is, well, well, it's really a, a thing, a real thing. Let's face it. It's not the threat to public health, they claim. It's not the threat to public safety, they claim either. These school districts, municipalities, and universities continue to overreach in the name of pure safety, which we know is impossible, while ignoring personal choice and the public good, which has not been served at all well by this information, miscalculations, and mishandling of the virus since January 20th of this year. Left to their own Sorry about that. And left to their own devices, the federal government will continue to create mistrust and confusion, which is dividing our country. Exactly what we cannot and must not allow to happen. The failure to a return to normalcy is what's killing Americans more than the low danger to a flu strain, mostly less lethal and dangerous than the common flu. Oh, yeah. By the way, what is also killing our return to normalcy? The same federal government who cares so much about you, this week they reported that the number of immigrants detained along the Mexico border crossed a new threshold in July, exceeding 200,000 for the first time in 21 years, according to U.S. Customs and Border Patrol Enforcement data released Thursday. Among the 212,672 illegal migrants taken into U.S. custody in July, were 82,966 family members and 18,962 unaccompanied teenagers and children, an all-time high. The unaccompanied minors' custody requirements have once more overwhelmed the Biden administration. Now, it's estimated that between 10 and 20 percent of these illegals would test positive for the China virus, but are being shipped willy-nilly across America, unvaccinated, in complete disregard of the public welfare. Now, before we go to break, this week and this summer continued to also go downhill downhill for Team Joe Obama. Even before all American troops leave the country of Afghanistan, ordered by Joe Biden, the Taliban is on the verge of stealing power in that country and returning it to a terror narco state. This is a tragedy, friends, of mammoth proportion, not only for Afghanis, but for our own country as well. We may soon witness the same sort of trauma that we saw after Obama 1.0 abandoned Iraq in 2010, and like the fall of Saigon when Gerald Ford abandoned Vietnam in 1975. Make no mistake, Joe Biden changed the Trump plan set in place, who developed a plan that would keep that country safe as we and our allies drew down our forces there. Our allies are watching these events very closely. So are our enemies. Communist China has already announced they will recognize the terrorist Taliban government. The Chinese and Russian dictators are probably licking, uh, uh, 
are probably looking at our forced retreat just like we did watching Russian troops as they left with their tails behind their legs in 1989. Hey, friends, this portion of Inside Track has been brought to you by my co-host, Eb Wilkinson, and his partner, Gary Imitz from Imitz Wilkinson Investment Management, whose baby steps approach to your wealth management is designed so you never have to solely depend on socialist security. Call Eb at 777-1911 and let him help you also. Mr. Producer, let's go ahead and take our first break. And when we return, our friend Gene Fedigan from Sister Jose Women's Center will join us. You're listening to Inside Track. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Jamie Kipper and her father, Gary Kipper, from Tucson Iron and Metal. What are they going to see when they come through the gates? So when they come on in, they'll see our building up front. People have free reign to then go out and look in the yard. So it's not a typical scrapyard with a ton of big machinery. We have a couple of forklifts around, but that's about it just to help move material. So when you come in, it's all organized by material, whether it's square tubing, angle iron, roofing. And then there is a pile in the back, which is still organized and easy to get through. But that's stuff that comes over from the scrap. So we're unique in that we get stuff in from the scrap, which a lot of artists and people will like or reuse, whether it's a sink that someone needs for their house. We sell literally anything made of metal. Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. Call 209-1579. Stop by the yard, 701 East 36th Street. Open Monday through Saturday. It's termite season. Bugs fear the blue trucks from Essential Pest Control. Go blue at Essential Pest Control. We'll eliminate those bugs, bees, and termites. And stop paying too much to that national provider. Buy local for great service and affordable rates. Call Essential Pest Control because termites fear the blue. Run for your life. Call for the blue trucks from Essential Pest Control. 886-3029. That's 886-3029. Or check online at EssentialPest.com. Ask not... What your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Wouldn't it be great if political leaders could create that country again? Learn how to do exactly that, one family at a time, with Imus Wilkinson Investment Management. Call me, Eb Wilkinson. I am USWilkinson.com, 777-1911, 777-1911. Hey, welcome back to Inside Track. This portion of today's show brought to you by our friends, Jamie and Gary Kipper from Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. They have some of the best surplus steel materials in stock ever to help you with your next home or ranch project. We're getting ready to do a big fence project at our hacienda. Jane and I will be buying steel products from Jamie. Call Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus at 520-209-1576. Hey, it may be a little out of the way, but well worth the trip. And a big shout out to Eric Rudin and his professional team at Essential Pest. Summer rains, and we've had a lot of it, mean more critters and vermin threatening your home or business. There's no better pest control company in our area. We have been a customer for over 30 years. Call the Essential Pros at 520-886-3029. These are two great locally owned, family-run businesses you can depend upon. Em and I do, and so should you. 
Without any further ado, I'm very pleased to welcome back Gene Fedigan from one of our favorite local causes, Helping Others in Need. Jean and her angels, and they are angels at Sister Jose, are close to our hearts. Eb and I are supporters, and so can you. We're going to hear about that. Greetings, Jean. It's been too long since we've Greetings. chatted. It has been a long time. I hope you're well. You're surviving all this rain. It's nice to have it. <laughs> we had 3.3 inches at my house Tuesday evening uh, and Wednesday morning. It was. Oh, I thought wow. it was time to break out Noah's Ark. Um, so there's there, so there's lots of things happening at Sister Jose on a day like today when it's raining and it's wet outside. What are the dangers faced by the homeless women that Sister Jose Women's Center assists? You know, um, today was um, a hard day in that on on days after hard rains like we had last night. If you're in the desert or in you're in the park or a tunnel or wherever you are, tunnels are really not wise now because of all the flooding. Right. But they're wet. Um, their clothes are wet right to the skin. Their shoes are wet. Their socks are wet. So trying to help them find clean clothes, um, a clean pair of socks, whatever we can do to just help them make it through the next day and then to provide a um, load of laundry, you know, if your sleeping bag or your blanket is wet, you need laundry. And just uh, those things that you and I take for granted for survival, they need. And so it's delightful to look around and watch the volunteers at the door say, welcome, come in, what do you need, how can I help? And just watch the women then warm to that, be charmed by that, and then began to work together. It's an extraordinary experience to see. And mm. women are, are the other thing, Bruce, is that it's very dangerous on the street right now. Um, there's a lot of, of violence, as we're aware of, and it, and it happens on the street. And women are often the, um, recipient of of violence. So having a safe place to come like Sister Jose's makes a big difference. That's and you know the, the police officers we ha- the police officers we have, Gene, uh in, in the downtown area, mm-hmm. there's way too few of them, but I know they do a great job. Um it's been amazing that we haven't read more uh, and that's also because the Arizona Daily Star is short staffed. But we, it's amazing we haven't read more about violence on, on, uh, females who are homeless in downtown. But it does exist, I guess, doesn't it? It does. Uh, you know, people don't, women won't talk about it because it's a daily occurrence. Um, I rem- I'm a nurse, as you well know, and the first time I heard about violence, um, um against a woman um, 12 years ago when I started this. I, um, you know, I just got on fire and I wanted to call the police and an ambulance and I wanted to go to the hospital and make sure she was okay and my goodness, she was a mess. And she looked at me at some point and said, no, I can't. If I do that, what do you think my life is worth on the street? And it really caught me up short. What do you, I, 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 
I know, I know that that means something. I'm not quite following it. They would be in more danger if they oh, went to yeah. the hospital. Oh yeah, yeah. Or turn the oh, the person who beat them up or raped them or whatever they did. Um, yeah, if you turn that person in, then you become a target on the street. And God, that's what I'm. I, just, I can't even that. imagine an existence like that. I just can't imagine an existence like that. Neither oh, can I. So Bruce, that brings so me you, back here every day. <laughs> Yeah. Jean, talk about the Sisters Helping Sisters Day program, because that, that's, that, that's a big part of what happens at Sister Jose, isn't it? Absolutely. So um, pre-pandemic, pre-COVID, we were able to let about 100 women a day pass through um, the center because of the, um, you know, the illness and the virus, and we've had to limit those numbers coming in, and it's really hard for us to do that because we see women really trying to survive day to day. And when they come in in the morning, we give them a breakfast. Usually it's cold cereal, although we've started serving oatmeal. And the women love homemade oatmeal. We serve them breakfast. They can take a shower. They can do a load of laundry. And they can rest. Um, and we can give them emergency clothing. So we depend on donations for um, for clothing and donations for food. And, and you know, we're always... I'm uh, grateful for people who bring in the pop-top cans and things like that that I can send out with the women at the end of the day. So we give them that. We give them a sandwich from uh, Caridad from, for lunch. Um, and then we give them canned supplies if they're on the street so that they can open a can of ravioli or Chef Boyardee or tuna or whatever has a pop-top lid. And they can and they can have food then at night, um, and that's helpful to them, and provides sustainable food for them. So before COVID, you saw <clears throat> about a hundred women a day. Right. Um, since COVID, and, and now as things have kind of changed uh, around a little bit, uh, with with uh, COVID cases going down as much as they have, um, how many women are you able to serve a day? I think um, I have to count on rainy days. You know, it'll go up and down depending on what the weather is. If you're in a dry spot and it's raining, you're not leaving that dry spot. So during yeah. real rainy days like today, we probably serve 50 to 60 women. On a regular day with the COVID stuff, we're up to about 70, 75 instead of the 100. So I'm, my numbers are down but they're still there. Um, and then, of course, we started last fall, we were able to open up uh, for our night program to have women come in and, and have respite or spend the night. I would have had 35 women pre-COVID. I can only have 22 now. I'm doing an expansion program, um, took part of the donation room, made a larger room so that I can get back to my pre-pandemic numbers. There are so many people who can't come in because I don't have a space. And so it's really important for us to get to the end of the expansion program. And 
will be able to open, I'm hoping, uh, mid-September, and we'll be back to 35 to 40 women each night. So we just have a couple of minutes remaining, Jean. How can our Inside Track Action Alliance members best help you right now, either by volunteering or, or, or sending money or, or, or uh, dropping off clothing? What's, what are the different <laughs> ways the that above, people can help? <laughs> um, well, there you go. There you are. So they can go onto our website, sisterhosea.org, and they can look at how to donate. So if they would like to donate toward the expansion project, they can go right onto our donation page and do that. If they would like to bring clothing and walking shoes, oh my goodness, we always need walking shoes, um, then they can drop those by any day, Monday through Saturday, 9 to 12, um, and same with uh, seasonal clothing. We always need volunteers. You know, when the pandemic started, we had 258 volunteers, and over one weekend when we when the city closed down, we went to 30. Wow. And we're low, slowly building those back up. I think we're almost back to 100 volunteers. So having having folks come in and volunteer with us is really important. And they can also go to the volunteer page on our website and uh, or just stop by and see us. I love to bring people through our center. When they come through, they begin to understand, A, what great work we do, but B, how we help women within our community. And they always leave changed. And we like to see folks come come by and visit us, too. Well, I certainly... Um it changed my life when I first met you and and, uh, oh and visited the old as well as the new uh, women's center. Um, right. Sister Jose located at 1050, 1050 North Park Avenue. What's South the Park best Avenue. way for people? I'm sorry, South Park Avenue, probably just north of 22nd Street right. on the mm-hmm. west side of the street. What can, uh, you know, how does somebody get in contact, uh, with you, uh, and, and the ladies by phone? Uh, what's the best number to reach you at? 520-909-3905. That's our main number. And we'll certainly answer questions and schedule tours, whatever they need. They can always ask for Jean. I'm almost always here. So they can ask for me, and if I'm not here or busy, I'll call them right back. Love to talk to people. Well, insiders, make it a point. If you haven't been to Sister Jose Women's Shelter, please call Jean uh, at the shelter. Um, make it make a time to, to visit. You're going to be amazed at what you see. It is extraordinary. Uh, the women that are being helped uh, are are uh, so much better off because of the work that Jean and her angels are providing uh, in the community. Um, Jean, we will be continuing to highlight your work uh, all through the rest of the year this year, hoping to raise more money for you. And thanks very, very much for coming on to the show today, especially on such short notice. I just thought with the rainstorms, uh, there probably was an enhanced need to get you on the show. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Bruce. We really appreciate your support. Our, Our honor to do that. Okay, Mr. Producer, let's go to the bottom of the hour break. We'll be right back after a few words from our great supporters. 
please stay tuned. I'm proud to welcome my good friends at Tucson Iron and Metal Retail to Inside Track as an advertiser. Jamie Kipper and her staff are conservation experts. They sell round and square steel tubing, metal plate and roofing materials, as well as new and used steel, aluminum, and stainless steel to ranchers, artists, interior designers, roofers, and do-it-yourselfers, just like all of the listeners here. Tucson Iron and Metal Retail is open Monday through Fridays, 8 a.m. to 4.30 p.m., and Saturdays, 8 a.m. to noon. Tucson Iron and Steel Retail, 701 East 36th Street. Call 520-209-1576 or go to TucsonIronRetail.com. And when you do call, mention this ad and receive an additional 10% discount on their already great prices. It's termite season. Fear the blue trucks from Essential Pest Control. Go blue at Essential Pest Control. We'll eliminate those bugs, bees, and termites. And stop paying too much to that national provider. Buy local for great service and affordable rates. Call Essential Pest Control because termites fear the blue. Run for your life. Call for the blue trucks from Essential Pest Control. 886-3029. That's 886-3029. Or check online at EssentialPest.com. I'm Eb Wilkinson with Imus Wilkinson Investment Management. I don't ever want you to be dependent on government ever again. I want you to become financially independent. You will never, ever have to depend on socialist security for your survival. We are here to guide you to financial independence. That's imuswilkinson.com, 777-1911. That's 777-1911. Hey, Insiders, welcome back to the show. Bruce is here broadcasting remotely from Coronado, California. Boy, I'm looking forward to get back in the studio when the summer's over. Eb's on assignment. We hope to have him back again real soon. And I hope I hope you're staying dry and uh, you don't have uh, roof leaks at your house like some people do. Um, before we get to our, to our guest today, our special guest, Charles Murray, I want to remind you that now is a perfect time to call Corazon Cabinets to get a jump on your next home improvement project. No supply chain problem on cabinets being available at Corazon Cabinets. Joy and Allie have their 6,000-square-foot warehouse stacked to the ceiling with beautiful cabinets ready for your next home project. Call and speak to the design professionals at 488-2266. That's 488-2266. Corazon Cabinets, luxury you can afford. On to our special guest for the balance of today's Facing Reality special edition of Inside Track, Dr. Charles Murray. Born and raised in Iowa, educated at Harvard and MIT, Charles Murray is the F.A. Hayek Chair Emeritus in Cultural Studies at the American Enterprise Institute, an organization I greatly admire. Dr. Murray first came to national attention uh, with the publication of Losing Ground, American Social Policy, 1950 to 1980. He's a smart guy. He's one of the big brain people we get to come on to Inside Track, which has uh, been credited as the intellectual foundation for the Welfare, Welfare Reform Act of 1996. In 1994, The Bell Curve, this was a New York Times bestseller he co-authored, sparked heated controversy for its analysis of the role IQ has in shaping America's class structure. In 2012, another 
of the New York Times bestsellers, Coming Apart, The State of White America, 1960 to 2010. Boy, this guy writes a lot. Uh, Dr. Murray described the nature and causes of the cultural polarization that by 2016 would shape national politics. And boy, it sure did. In his latest book, and this is um, uh, a great one, uh, this is um, his his new book, um, Facing Reality, uh, to, um, hang on here, Charles, it's, it's bad when the host blows the, uh, blows the, the, uh, the introduction. Um, Facing Reality, the two truths about race in America. Apologies to you. I've, I've been focusing on you for, for so many uh, weeks now. I, I blew that. I'm sorry about that. Uh, thanks for joining right. us today. My pleasure. You've no doubt seen, yeah, you've no doubt seen Charles on various cable channels and listened to him on national radio. Now we're treated to welcoming him on Inside Track. Dr. Murray, your latest book, Facing Reality, Two Truths About Race in America, has also created a lot of controversy, hasn't it? Yeah, it, it has. Uh, it's, the, the mainstream media have tried to ignore it. The Washington Post reviewed it, uh, Wall Street Journal, and the New York Times, the Washington Post, or any of the other major outlets. But nonetheless, the word has gotten out, and uh, that there has been a reasonable amount of response to it. So uh, we, we know your other books have really had a profound impact, both socially as well as politically and intellectually. Why did you write Facing Reality, The Two Truths About Race in America? Well, it, it uh, started last July, I guess, Bruce, uh, in the aftermath of the protests and the riots, when I became aware that the mainstream media was portraying uh, the, the the problems exclusively using the narrative of critical race theory, uh, which is to say that uh, uh, this was the result of, of racist country, Systematic racism in the United States, part of the American institutions, white privilege, and no, none of the major outlets, uh, New York Times, Washington Post, the rest of them, ABC, CBS, NBC, none of them said, no, the picture is complicated, of course, because you've got a couple of other things going on uh, that uh, could create some of these problems for things, reasons that have nothing to do with racism. And that's, Bruce, where the two truths come in. Because whatever the causes may be, this book is not about causes. It's about what is. And one of the things that is, is that violent crime in black communities is about ten times higher than in white communities. And that has an effect on policing. Simply put, police are in a much more dangerous environment in a low-income black community than they are in a middle-class white community. And professional police, the aid and responsibility, uh, will have to take more proactive steps to protect themselves and do their jobs. The second truth uh, is, and this goes to the issues of, well, we don't have enough uh, black physicians and enough black physicists and enough black senior managers at Google. Uh, this goes to a mean difference in cognitive ability between blacks and whites, a mean difference with a lot of overlap. But that also has implications for the number of people who are available for very cognitively demanding jobs. So I was faced with a situation in which we were being accused of systemic racism as a nation. And those allegations were largely, in fact, almost entirely factually, empirically false. 
so I felt I had to write a book. Write the book. It seems that we've heard hundreds of times, if not thousands of times, that uh, home environment, uh, a dad being or not being uh, present, uh, educational attainment uh, has a lot to do with uh, outcomes, whether it be uh, uh, social contact, violence, uh, intelligence, and so on. What's your What's your personal uh, research tell you? I think I think it's especially important with things like crime. I think it's especially important with things like juvenile delinquency and drug addiction and the rest of it. Uh, when you do not have a father in the home, and even more when the entire neighborhood has very few men, adult males, who are acting as responsible partners to the mothers of their children, uh, I think that has a huge effect. Here's the problem that even if that is a major cause, it doesn't make any difference to the decisions that a cop has to make when he's on the beat. Similarly, no matter what the causes of the difference in mean cognitive ability may be, that makes no difference when you're saying how many people who are Asian versus Latino versus black versus white are qualified senior positions at Microsoft or Google. So whatever the causes may be, the existence of these disparities is important to take into account in evaluating the allegations of white privilege and systemic racism. So I've spent a fair amount of time working uh, on the Navajo uh, reservation uh, up in northeastern Arizona, as well as on the Apache reservation. I happen to be in the housing business. And, um, you know, even even the Indian Americans, the Native Americans I've met through the years and worked with, they've told me personally about their different perception of like, uh, excuse me, of life being earth, wind, and fire. Um, and and they have a different. And they told me this. It's not Bruce making this up, Charles. Uh, they say that you know we we work in our own time in our own space. We don't look at the world the same way that you do, Bruce. Um, why are why are differences in people so difficult to accept, um, even even by those who who we we think by their educational atta- attainment and, and by their position should have some sort of a rational view of different peoples in our country? I, I've often wondered why people resist the idea of differences so passionately. Because believe me. Uh, I have spent the last 25 years after the bell curve came out hearing how difficult it is for people to think about that. And and the best explanation, as far as I can tell, is this. People insist on thinking in terms of hierarchies of superior to inferior. That's one problem. Mm. And the second thing is that they, when they hear that there is a difference in the group mean, they find it very hard to hold in their heads the idea that a difference in means doesn't sort people into separate bins. If you take cognitive ability as an example and take blacks and whites as an example, millions of blacks are smarter than millions of whites. These are what we call overlapping distributions. And with the superiority-inferiority thing, the idea that you can take any one quality, like IQ, or any other kind of ability, beauty, charm, persuasiveness, persistence, you name it, and say, oh, that person is superior to another person, is, is idiotic. 
Human beings are very complicated bundles of different traits, different strengths, different weaknesses. We do not get rank ordered uh, from high to low on security. But as I say, people have a real hard time talking about group differences and being comfortable with them. And I think that it's essentially they're scared. They're scared of being called racist. They're scared of, of, of being racist in a way. It's just a hugely sensitive topic in this country. But what's happened right now is that it is now being used as a club to indict the United States within systemic racism. And that is going to have disastrous consequences. Um, Charles, Martin Luther King and so many leaders in our historic civil rights movement of the past three quarters of a century. It's hard to believe it's been going on uh, that long and, and maybe more. Um, MLK and so many others focused on equality. What's the critical difference between equality and equity, which is the new mantra of the West uh, of the left? And why is equity a dangerous concept? Well, it's a shorthand for saying equality of rights and equality of treatment is not enough. There must be equality of result. That is directly opposite to the message of Martin Luther King at the Lincoln Memorial in August of 1963, at what was probably the, the emotional high, you know, apogee of the civil rights movement, when he made his famous plea that his daughters be judged by the content of their character instead of the color of their skin. That is what the way that uh, the civil rights leaders thought about equality in 1963. And that is was the crusade that won over uh, the white population. I mean, I'm old. I'm really old, uh, as people who heard my biography, as you read it, can tell. And I can remember as a teenager and in my early 20s, the civil rights movement. And it really did succeed in morally raising the consciousness of white America as to what they had done to black Americans uh, for centuries. And that was all great. That was wonderful. And then within a year or two after that, uh, Lyndon Johnson said, well, equality of rights is not enough. We must see equality of results. That's a much harder thing to achieve. And, uh, and, and we have not achieved it. And now the statement is, oh, well, the reason we have an achievement must be racism. After 60 years, what else can it be? And the answer is that what else it can, it can be are persisting differences between the groups that we have spent hundreds of billions of dollars trying to fix unsuccessfully. And even though we can hope that we can fix them in the future, we haven't fixed them yet. And that explains a great deal of the charges of systemic racism that are now, as far as I can tell, the, uh, the prevailing ideology of the progressive left. In, in, in your book, Facing Reality, The Two Truths About Race in America, uh, you contend that identity politics presents the existential threat to the American experiment. Right. Tell us what the American creed is and, and how it's being imperiled. The American creed, that phrase, used to be in common use. Uh, it hasn't been used for, for decades now, but it, in mid-century, 
everybody knew what the American creed was. It was based on the words of the Declaration of Independence, and it went to equality under the law and uh, freedom to live your life as you see fit and so forth. But the central feature of it was that in America, you are treated as an individual, not by your race, color, or creed, religion, you name it. You're supposed to be judged by what you bring to the table. And this was the magnet that uh, lured millions of immigrants in the 19th century here. Well, identity politics, critical race theory is one form of identity politics. Uh, there are other forms of it. Identity politics say, no, people are defined by their sex, by their race, by these group characteristics, and the power of the state must be used to treat the oppressed groups preferentially and to punish the groups that have uh, been saturated in white privilege and oppressing them. That is antithetical to what the United States is supposed to be about. Why is this an existential threat? Because you now have tens of millions of whites who do not think of themselves as racist. They have not behaved as racist. They are being told, even though you don't think you are, even though you haven't done anything that looks as if you are, you are deeply racist and wrong, and you have been bad, you must face your whites. My guess is, and I have to say guess because we don't have a lot of hard data on this, is that tens of millions of these people are saying, I've had it. And if blacks and Latinos and others can use race as the basis for their politics, well, white is a race, too, and we can use race as the basis of our politics. Uh, you know, non-Latino whites still constitute, I guess in the latest numbers, about 58% of the population. And so if you get large numbers of whites who say, okay, we're going to be in favor of policies that benefit whites. If that happens, if, then the whole thing's over. Because well, it, we will be... <laughs> go ahead. Yeah, I mean, the, the notion of, of American... Uh, life is e pluribus unum from from many one. I mean, this is in direct uh, um, uh, uh, violent sort of conflict with that whole notion of e pluribus unum and the melting pot that you know people and not That's just right. white people, but 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 others have have thought was the great thing about America for probably the last hundred and fifty to close to one hundred seventy five years, isn't it? Yeah, it's. Uh... Well, e pluribus unum also refers to the basis of democracy. You have many people, and they choose representatives. But there is nothing that is more central to the to the American ideals, uh, what used to be called the American creed, uh, than the idea of you are an individual who is to be judged as an individual. And the government is not going to say another person gets privileges you don't because of some artificial uh, characteristic. Now it's color of skin. In an aristocratic country, the people got artificial privileges because they uh, were born into the aristocracy. What people are heading toward with identity politics is a form of government that prevailed for 10,000 years the time the government was invented until the American Revolution. And that's a government where you get in power, you use it to benefit your friends and punish your enemies, 
and then somebody else comes along and takes the power away from you, and they do the same thing. The American experiment is all about breaking with that history, and identity politics is pulling us back down into that morass. So rather than being a progressive uh, idea, it's really a regressive uh, concept, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's very old. The <laughs> idea of saying that uh, we're going to get power and we're going to reward our friends and punish our enemies is exactly what identity politics says. It's cloaked in all sorts of uh, high-sounding rhetoric about social justice. It boils down to, I'm going to treat you, white guy, uh, differently from the way I treat my friends who are the same race I am, and I'm going to use the power of the state to make that good. And it doesn't get much more toxic than that. We're talking with uh, Dr. Charles Murray, the author of Facing Reality, Two Truths About Racism in America. Um, Charles, um, you, you're... Your your book is very technical in some areas, although most of it, the, the, I think the critical parts for, for a dumbbell like me to understand uh, were written very clearly about the two truths. Um, you, you write and you've shown the studies that show there was this tremendous catch-up uh, in educational attainment that happened probably was up, up until about 1980 or 85 or so, and, th- and then since then... Yeah. The, the the different the different races in America have kind of followed parallel paths, haven't they? Yeah, that's uh, it, it's it's a heartening story for a while, and then it stops being heartening. It, it depends that the time when it stopped depends on whether you're talking about the year the tests were given or the year the people were born who were taking the tests. Uh, if you talk about the year the tests were given, uh, there had been a narrowing of the gap in test scores from the 1960s through the mid-1980s. But what it really reflected was a narrowing of test scores of people who were born in the 1930s and 40s compared to people who were born uh, up to the early 1970s. And I don't think it's hard to explain. Uh, The fact is education does make a big difference in terms of of, uh, test scores. It especially makes a difference if you're taking a comparison between no education and just even an okay uh, grade school and middle school education. And in the South, in the United States, in the 1930s, 40s, and into the 50s, uh, an awful lot of black kids were not even getting that rudimentary education. And education did improve after World War II and continued to improve for uh, black children into the 1960s and 1970s. And it seems to me that the narrowing of test scores reflects that. Why did it stop? Uh, that there, there are a couple of explanations. One is that in the early 1970s, uh, a lot of problems in the black community began to get worse. That was an era of uh, rapidly increasing non-marital births, where fathers were not in the home. It was an era of rapidly increasing crime. Uh, the school systems in urban areas became chaotic. Urban schools had actually been pretty good in the 1950s and 60s. Uh, they became chaotic in the 1970s. There are, there are a lot of different explanations for why the progress stopped. 
the salient point, if we're trying to figure out whether America is systemically racist, is that it's been this way now for 30 years, during which we have, as I mentioned earlier, made heroic efforts in terms of education to try to improve the education of disadvantaged kids in hundreds of billions, if not trillions of dollars spent on it. So the fact that this has persisted for the last few years suggests that uh, we really don't know how to use social programs and educational improvements uh, to close the gap further. Charles, we only have about four, four and a half minutes left on the show today. Um, I, get, I guess the, the most important thing uh, is not talking about the issue, but, but talking about solutions. So what solutions do you recommend uh, to combat this sort of toxic identity politics and, and the systematic uh, uh, racism narrative uh, while defending the American creed? And, and what can the average citizen do, people listening to this show? Well, I, I, I'm not an optimistic man on this issue. But one thing we can start to do, Bruce, is simply to say out loud, uh, if you still believe in the idea of treating people as individuals, regardless of their race, let's start saying that out loud. Right, right now you have uh, a narrative that is very prominent, again, in the major news outlets saying, that the concept of colorblindness is basically racist. That saying the word melting pot, the phrase melting pot, is racist. I think it's a very small percentage of Americans, of whatever race, who believe that. I think a very large majority of Americans still believe in the ideal of treating people as individuals. We are being drowned out by, I think, a small minority. And what can we as do as individuals? We can start being more vocal about saying uh, the ideal was correct in the first place. If you say that's unlikely to do much good, I'm not going to argue with you. I am increasingly of the opinion that we have to bite the bullet and say that all of the ways in which the government has used money and laws and regulations to give preference to some groups over others have to end. Affirmative action started as a noble effort uh, to make compensation for past injustices. The fact is that it is poisonous, that, uh, you know, it was bad when a black job applicant knew he had to be twice as good as a white applicant in 1940 to have a chance of getting a job. It's just as bad when a white policeman taking the sergeant's exam uh, knows that he has to have uh, a passing test score in the sergeant's exam that's way higher than the black applicants or else he's not going to get the job. Both of those are wrong. Both of those shouldn't exist. And I know that affirmative action is deeply entrenched with lots of political allies. I think as Americans in a bipartisan way have to wake up to the fact that it has been toxic and that has been poisoning race relationships now for 50 years. Charles, um, it, it's difficult to, to imagine um, how quickly we're going to come to resolution uh, on all of this because our elected leaders don't seem to be concerned about anything but winning elections through identity politics. Uh, I guess I would end it on that. Your thoughts? Yeah, um, I wrote this book. Because I think the threat is so serious at this point 
that any of us who have a platform are obligated to do whatever we can, whatever we can to, to fight it. And in the case of myself, what do I do? I can write books. And so I wrote the book. But I will not try to sugarcoat it and say that, uh, oh, everything will work out in the end. I think we are dangerously close to things not working out in the end. And over the foreseeable future, seeing in effect the end, the idea that animated this country and that made us the envy of the world. And if that happens, it will be an enormous tragedy. So all I can say to people who are listening is uh, we've all got to fight it. And it's going to be hard. I don't know what else to do except get up in the morning and say, which side you're on and decide you ought to be on is in favor of traditional American ideals of freedom and equality. Charles Murray, the, the book is Facing Reality, Two Truths About Race in America. It's available through Encounter Books. You can get it on Amazon anywhere. Thanks very much for joining us today. And insiders, I hope you've enjoyed today's chats with Facing Reality author and political scientist Charles Murray and our friend Gene Fredigan from Sister Jose. Join us next Saturday when CD2 Republican candidate for U.S. Congress Juan Siscomani joins us along with opinion maker and, Ward, and author Ward Connolly. Until next Saturday, for Ed Wilkinson, this is Bruce Ash wishing you all a very pleasant good afternoon. And stay dry, you hear? Customers come first at Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. A lot of the, the cities and the counties around have initiatives for artists. I think we're one of the premier artist suppliers for steel. First Saturday of every month, you can come down early and actually go through the scrapyard across the street. It's seven acres of metal. You can walk through with our people and pick out what you want. It's always interesting to see what the artists have done. We've done uh, actually a couple projects with the U of A engineering department and music department where the engineering music students came down together. They had to pick something out of the scrap and uh, they had to build an instrument. And we have one of those in front of the plant. Some really cool things come out of the scrap. Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. Call 209-1579. Stop by the yard. 701 East 36th Street. Open Monday through Saturday. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Wouldn't it be great if political leaders could create that country again? Learn how to do exactly that, one family at a time, with Imus Wilkinson.